Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Over Coffee with Tonks, a show of conversations about coffee, culinary stuff, and culture, hosted by me, Tonks, longtime professional coffee nerd and occasional entrepreneur. For this first episode, I made the safest bet I could think of, which is inviting on my longtime friend, founder of San Francisco's Linea Cafe, Andrew Barnett. My friendship with Andrew spans a couple of decades during which we've uh, witnessed and commiserated about a lot of pretty dramatic changes that have happened in the coffee industry. In this episode, we talk about his origin story in coffee, dreaming about flavors. We lament how fancy coffee bars came to be seen as more bougie than blue collar. We talk about what to order if you're stuck at a Starbucks. And I digress into some cynicism about the current state of coffee bars, and Andrew talks me down from the ledge before I say anything too embarrassing. I hope you enjoy and can overlook a few of my technical stumbles. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, please leave a comment and say hi. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, um, I guess tell me how my voice sounds at 2x speed. Still weird. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Andrew Barnett. I am very happy to be talking today with Andrew Barnett, uh, one of my favorite people in coffee, uh, well known in coffee circles as the nicest man in coffee. And I hope that's a reputation that he can keep after <laughs> this conversation. Because uh, <laughs> Andrew and I, we talk a lot and uh, we uh, shit talk a lot. Um, we're both very opinionated uh, and uh, always find something to be a little bit grumpy about in the state of coffee. Um, so Andrew, this is my first episode, but I'm going to pretend that I've been doing this forever and say that I like to start off all of these episodes with, uh, the question of, uh, tell me about your first time. Uh, what was the experience with coffee or a period in your life or a, a shop or what was the thing that sort of put you over the threshold into sort of having coffee become a serious relationship in your life. Hey, Tony, great to see you and uh, talk a little shit. And uh, it's an honor to be a guest on your show. Um, just in terms of coffee, where it all starts, um, you know, it's just being a kid. Remember going to the A&P with my mother and, uh, how she would grind up some coffee. They would have bulk beans section and how good it smelled. I just like, wow, this is the best smell in the world. It was incredible. And, um, you know, when I got old enough, they let me drink a bit of coffee and um, I found it palatable if I put enough uh, cream in there and sugar. And I thought, hmm, this is kind of tasty. Um, but I didn't, really get that interested in coffee till later in life. And I came in kind of through a strange entryway. I trained to be a dinner chef and was apprenticing to go that route. Got a gig um, at a coffee shop in San Francisco in 1976 called The Higher Grounds. And crazy enough, it still lives and exists in the Glen Park neighborhood. And it's Walking in that place is like a time warp. Uh, the logos, is that, that's and the, the stained original glass. location. Yeah, it it looks like you were in 1976. It's has coffee bags uh, stapled to the the uh, jute coffee bags stapled to the ceiling. It was a 
little coffee bar and it had a two group gaggia machine. And I tried to hustle a gig there by saying, I know how to cook and I can make your soups and salads, sandwiches and your blintzes and all these things for you. And they asked me, can you make espresso? And I said, no. And I kind of hustled the gig and said, I can learn. And uh, so I, some of the people that I worked with, they'd worked in North Beach at some of the espresso bars and they taught me a thing or two. And I thought I was pretty good after a few months and that I knew something. And uh, if I probably look back at it now, I'd probably go that coffee's pretty terrible. But, uh, you know, I like big milk drinks. I liked cappuccinos was my thing. And the place that we loved in San Francisco at the time was a place called Cafe Trieste. It's pretty well known. And they were making cappuccinos and lattes and espresso um, since the mid-50s. Um, and that was a favorite place of mine. So that was my start into coffee was really the, the later part. And I was about 19 years old when I started making coffee. And, and I loved it. I really loved it. And even though I had a culinary background and trained, I go, wow, coffee's so cool. And the more I learned about coffee, the more I realized I didn't know. And even though I trained as a dinner chef, it was the deeper I went, I thought this is a culinary pursuit as complicated as anything else. And to really get it right was as difficult as making creme brulee or making uh, different different sauces, a sauce mornay, or you name the sauces. That's a, a relatively easy one, but there were all these areas where it could be tightened up. And I've been doing this now for over 45 years, and I'm going, there's there are so many rabbit holes, and there's so many areas where you could make improvement. And as an industry, it's, I think you just, you find your recipes that work. You find out where you can fit in. I'm still trying to fit in, figure out where I fit in. Um, but I love it. And I love coffee and espresso more than ever. And I dream about espresso. Uh, so that might make me an outlier in the, the quote unquote high end third wave. Uh, um, I feel like you and I started roasting around the same time, maybe 20-ish years ago. And But but you had, entrepreneurially, you, you'd opened up um, a shop uh, quite a bit before that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a little background on that and just acknowledging that Tony and I share roots. Uh, we were both um, worked as baristas. We both worked as coffee roasters. I was living in Northern California. Tony was living in Seattle. Um, my first coffee shop, my first enterprise was uh, opened in 1994. It was a place called the Western Cafe, and it was up in Sonoma County in Santa Rosa, California. And um, I was serving coffees from David Schomer Espresso Vivace um, up in Seattle. And uh, Tony, and he can tell you more on this, was uh, working at Victrola Cafe up in Seattle, and they were also serving espresso vivace. So, and I was fortunate that my 
mentor was David Shomer, and he showed me his very unique uh, perspective on how to prepare espresso and steam milk, and it was very specific recipe. And for me, it was a really great thing. Um, at the time I discovered David was in 1993 at Coffee Fest in Seattle, and I had no idea about anything. And my sister-in-law who lived up in Seattle said, you should go to this Coffee Fest idea. And I had this very, oh, all I need to do is get a coffee cart and find a good roaster like Starbucks and open up a coffee cart in um, Sebastopol, California, and I'll make $100,000 a year. Easy. And I had no idea what equipment or what beans. And I happened to stumble on an Espresso Vivace booth and David Schomer's making this coffee and he's got this little camera that's in a in a screen showing people pouring latte art. And I'm like, what is that? That's 1993. And then I tasted David's coffee and it was the sweetest coffee I'd ever had. Um, it poured with the milk and it was not dark roasted. And I went to a couple of David's lectures at Coffee Fest and then I decided I'd go visit him at his shop and the coffee was great. I carried David's coffee at my shops, which is probably in terms of a business pathway or a kind of a branding exercise. No one knew who Espresso Vivace was in uh, Santa Rosa, California. Uh, they did not know about him. And, you know, it didn't get me any customers, but we got known for having this really great coffee. And in 19... 94, when I finally opened, latte art was an anomaly. And the, the big thing in Northern California, and I'd say the West Coast was this very dark roast style of coffee. A matter of fact, specialty coffee was kind of synonymous with dark roast coffee. You were kind of Starbucks dark roast or Pete's dark roast, and that was specialty coffee. So that's, I'm going to hand this over to you, Tony, maybe <laughs> want to talk a little bit about uh, your pathway. Yeah. I mean, we'll have a hundred episodes of this <laughs> for, for me to, for me to unravel the onion of my, uh, of, of my weird coffee career, uh, accidental coffee career. Um, I mean, I, I think that's kind of an interesting angle is that my generation of of coffee professionals. I think your generation of coffee professionals is none of us really set out to be professionals. <laughs> There's a lot of people that are kind of entrepreneur first and the culinary ambitions come second. You know, I, I, uh, I thought I knew a little bit about the business part of running cafes and uh, I did it. And there wasn't, I didn't, study business. I was an art student and, you know, my love was coffee and the flavor and kind of what I thought it could be. And I think over the last 40 years, I know a little bit about business, um, enough to be dangerous. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I would say, I think there's the art side of making coffee, like making it for the flavor of coffee. And I've always liked the flavor first and 
dream about flavors. And then there's the people part, which I love. And then there's the business part, which I find interesting. And you kind of need to stay afloat in order to play the game and not lose money. And hopefully you're making money with this. There are people that are really good at business, but maybe they don't know that much about it. And it's probably the same could be said in a lot of different industries. Like, you know, there are people that are really good at acting, there are people that are really good at directing movies or really great cinematographers. And then there are people that are probably the money people that know how to get the money to make these movies and, you know, see these big ships through and make money with it. Sometimes they don't. Um, so there's the art side of the film industry and uh, the recording industry, or you name it. Um, coffee, you know, sometimes the artists are asked to try and do all of those things, which is a lot to take on. So Linnea's in San Francisco. Yes. And you've been living in San Francisco for uh, a long time and certainly in Northern California for forever. <laughs> um, and it's, it seems to me like it's, it's, it's one of the more interesting coffee cities for sure. Um, there's a lot of players, a lot of very distinct styles, which, um, I'm envious of, um, when you're in a, a place where the coffee culture is maybe a little more stylistically homogenous. Um, and it's also, I think a really tough environment for a small business to, sort of keep their head above water and be successful generally. And I wonder if you have any feelings about uh, life as yeah. a small business in San Francisco. I think it's, yeah, I think one is San Francisco many years ago used to be a very affordable town, a lot of blue collar folks and uh, people who grew up here. And now it's a very expensive place to live, you know, and like you could say that about New York and other cities of the world, that that's just the way it is. Um, so I think it makes it, it's a harder climate to succeed in. It means in order to attract talented people to work with you, you need to pay a livable wage. So you, it's just a fact that you need to have benefits, you need to have all these things or people can't afford to work for you and live in San Francisco or commute, you know, a god awful amount of time to get to the gig. So that's one part. Rents are very expensive. Everyone's competing for the same places. So there's this very competitive vibe. So that changes the landscape of doing business. And even now, just getting things built, if you go, oh, I want to get something built and construct something Good luck getting uh, affordable contractors and people to design the stuff. So you need to be really resourceful. And that's to say, not to say that it's impossible. I think that there's always room for creative, talented people who can maybe look at a way of thinking outside the box. So that, that happens. But it's, it's more challenging. My gig is kind of what it's always been. I try and be as good as I can be and um, you know, work with the farms I work with that I really love working with, the producers, 
the importers, some of those folks I've been working with 20 years now. What I do, you know, I just like try and hone our recipes. You know, I think there's, I'm not interested in all the latest hotness. I am interested what people are doing, but you don't have to change everything all the time. I think there are people that like their comfort food that go to In-N-Out Burger all the time. Not that we're In-N-Out Burger because they know they're going to get a consistent, delicious product. But we mix it up a little bit with what I call seasonal. You know, we do some a few different things with espresso, kind of what I call the linea style, um, or even our filter coffee has a very... I'd say unique expression. And I've always been driven towards flavors that are sweet, not coyingly sweet, but I believe that coffee has a natural inherent sweetness to it. And that's kind of my gig. That's, I would say drinking your coffee, Tony, when I get a chance to, it's sweet, it's pleasant. It has a real nice approachable feel to it. And I think that a lot of coffee is people go, oh, my God, you're a coffee pro. You've been doing it. You've got this refined palate. And I go, I don't know. I, I think that you do not need to be a coffee expert or have a huge vocabulary in order to dig delicious coffee. And I would make an analogy the kids know sweetness. If you give a five-year-old child five different peaches and one is kind of peak, you know, just picked um, and it's ripened and it has all these good things going for it. Maybe there's another peach that was just picked weeks earlier or it's green and it wasn't ripened the same way and you slice up the peaches for a kid They'll gravitate towards the one that's the sweetest. And I don't think you need this huge vocabulary or this great education to know good tasting coffee and that it's a very approachable thing. And I think people get scared off by fancy espresso machines and fancy brew gear and coffee educators. And, you know, we try and kind of, I say, demystify all of this and just get great coffee to people. Something I struggle with is that, you know, in, in coffee, we have the flavor wheel. We have a lot of, you know, very sophisticated sounding language to talk about, you know, how we grade and assess green coffee. But I think that that language to me always falls really short in describing the differences between, you know, you've got a, an Ethiopia Ucro on your menu right now, which yeah. I just cupped a few days ago and it was beautiful. Um, and if we were to roast that same coffee, you know, you and I could, could cup that, assess that, come up with, you know, descriptors that, that I think are relevant to expressing what makes that green coffee selection unique. But if we try to describe the, the stylistic differences in your roast versus, versus our roast, we don't have a, a really good descriptive language for saying like why, you know, three or four samples of the same coffee from different roasters uh, taste maybe dramatically different. Um, and I'm not sure that that's like 
a problem with an easy solution. I've wrestled with that for years and, you know, internally in, in kind of the environments where I've worked, certainly now with Yes, Please, with, with Sumi, Aaron, Bronwyn, everyone that's in the cupping room, like there's, you know, shorthand and hand gestures and faces that you make and, and ways that you kind of express or, or try to like draw a line to things that are in the cup that you like or dislike that are maybe, you know, somewhat ineffable, but they're not ineffable to the person who's there sitting there tasting that coffee in that moment. It's much easier to sort of be able to be in the same room, point to a cup of coffee that you're both sharing and say like this thing, do you taste that thing that's kind of like this and it's in the middle and it sort of feels hollow or like that works when you're one-on-one. And I think that's very actionable when you're, when you're in a sort of laboratory environment, that's, you know, a closed loop of all the people that are making decisions that can affect that, that can change that the sort of, you know, industry consensus descriptive language for coffee, I think is, it's much less useful on the cupping table than it is, um, you know, in, in sort of a, a SCA score sheet classification grading mentality. And also, I don't want to marginalize or minimize people that taste coffee or different foods for a living or say that, you know, there is no point for education. I think just, I think I want to make coffee, drinking coffee more approachable for people and that they don't feel stupid, that they need to have this flowerly language in order to be able to um, sit at the table with the rest of us and that it shouldn't be this intimidating thing. I like to turn people on. I mean, I'm excited about turning people on a flavor, but I've never seen myself as an educator. I'm just kind of like, hey, almost like here's this flavor and I dig it, maybe you like it too. And I get pleasure in it, but I don't have any, I say, feel like I need to talk to anyone and tell them what's in that flavor. And matter of fact, I don't even know that they're going to like what I like or care for it one bit. And I think that some of taste is very subjective. It's personal. And some of it may even be genetic. I mean, I sit with people that are really, I remember sitting at uh, favorite uh, Burmese noodle bar in the Mission, Yamo, and uh, sitting next to a chef, and he was asking his wife to pick out the cilantro because he couldn't stand it, uh, the flavor of cilantro. And I love cilantro, and I don't know if it's a genetic genetic thing that, you know, the world might be divided into people who love cilantro and those who think it tastes like eating soap, maybe worse. And that is... I think the same could be said for coffee um, in different flavors. You know, you get into all this stuff about, you know, boozy coffees and anaerobic fermentation. Some people love it. Some people hate it. And some people love kind of wildly fruity coffees, quote unquote, possibly natural coffees. And that can be divisive. And I think everyone's got their things they like. When it comes to the coffees that you buy for Linea, do you 
act as kind of a gatekeeper for what coffees you say yes or no to? Is it sort of entirely like your taste that dictates like what the outer boundaries are? Do you find yourself buying coffees that you're like, well, that's not really my style, but I think there's customers that we have or people inside of the company, (laughs) the crew that might like that coffee? Like where's your fence there? That's a great question. Um, I'd say the first thing I ask myself, I mean, you know, we have our own, what I call Lydia, Linea check boxes, you know, do we know the farmer? Do we like the farmer? Um, most of what we purchase right now is certified organic. Uh, there are a few outliers. We buy coffees from El Inerto, which is the first carbon neutral farm in Guatemala. Their coffees are amazing. But the thing I ask myself, is that coffee sweet? You know, is it a sweet coffee? You know, and that's maybe some of that's how we roast it and develop it. In terms of would I want to drink a whole cup of it every day of the week? Some coffees, yeah, I could drink that coffee all day long, every day. I would want that coffee as a filtered coffee, a pour over, as a Chemex, as a Hario, as an AeroPress, brewed as espresso. And then there are coffees that I kind of go are maybe a little bit wild. They're a little bit more fruity. We have a coffee from Ethiopia from Shikiso. And it's got some of the wild berry notes in it, which I really love. But it's not the thing that I want to drink all day long. It's like I like little tastes of that. Um, so that's just kind of, but every coffee in our lineup, I go, yeah, I would like to drink that coffee. And there, there are coffees too that I guess I go, yeah, I respect that coffee. It's sweet. It's got some nice notes, but maybe it's a little too boozy for me to want to just drink all the time. Maybe it's an anaerobic um, fermentation. I go, oh, that's interesting, but not my thing. You know, and that's probably what makes the world go round. And other people might be like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing coffee. You've got to drink this. And I'm like, that's cool. It's like being in the fashion business. Things go in and out of style. There are trends. There's new hotnesses that everyone follows into and they feel this is it. But I'd say there's a lot of like the music industry or the film industry, I think people find out what the latest hotness is and everyone chases it. And, you know, someone goes, oh, got an EK-43. I need to have an EK-43 to be in business. And I love EK-43s, but I think that they're just things that are trends that everyone feels they need to be doing certain things to be legit. They, you know, may even copy the same flavor descriptors. And I just segueing back on that is, you know, I think flavor descriptors are really its own minefield because, you know, we'll say this is a chocolate flavor. Well, what flavor of chocolate is it? There are thousands of flavors of chocolate. What's a peach flavor? And then even, is it reminiscent of peach? Or is it, is it really tastes like peach? You know, that maybe because we don't even have the vocabulary. We go, it's peach. It's totally peach. You can get three or four people to agree on it. 
Right. Or you have to you have to go into the whole stone fruit pantheon and find is it more apricot? Is it nectarine? Is it pluot? Like where does it fall on the on the stone fruit spectrum? I mean, chocolate's interesting to me because it's it's one that that I use a lot as like kind of a softball descriptor. But then I see a lot of roasters and a lot of other coffee pros who treat chocolate as like a euphemism for dark roast and not like as someone who really loves chocolate and thinks about sort of, you know, the, the various nuances of, of really good chocolate. That's really interesting. I think for a lot of people, chocolate became synonymous with a dark roast and it became a dirty word which is interesting because one of my favorite flavors in the world is chocolate. And there's just a myriad of chocolate flavors. It's a rainbow of flavors. Um, But I think that that is kind of certain coffee professionals think of that as a dirty word or ate a very uncool thing for coffees to be. How do you make coffee at home? What's your daily driver right now? So, So how I start the day. So, I make pour-over coffee at home. So there are three ways. Uh, my wife, Kathy, and I, we, fortunately for me, she loves to drink coffee. And uh, I make pour-over. And I'd say 90% of the time I make Chemex. Um, and I love Chemex. And I've got this little recipe that I've been working on over the years. And it makes delicious coffee all the time. Um, and no matter what bean you know I'm using, it's it's great and it's really consistent and solid, um, and I love the simplicity of it. I feel like I promise the listeners shit talk, and and yeah, you and I when we talk privately, like we're we're always finding you know something to throw shade on. As roasters, we cut our teeth at a time when you know espresso was was dominant. Most of the manual brewing devices that are popular today weren't weren't on the market then or were much harder to get. You've seen the evolution of of kind of what what espresso culture in the United States is from from a, a much bigger arc than I think most of us who are in the industry uh, today can speak to. And um, I'd be kind of interested in your take on that. My lens was always very espresso focused. Um, and later on, I, you know, became a client of David Schomer's and then later opened up espresso bars and was very espresso focused and there was no filter coffee. And then 2000, I bought a Diedrich roaster and, uh, started learning how to roast. And my, I own this little coffee bar with a partner and we parted ways and she kept the coffee bar, which was all espresso. And I like, oh, oh crap, I've got to make some money with this and hustle some wholesale accounts <laughs> or I'm going to not be able to feed myself. So I thought just selling espresso in Sonoma County, that's a pretty weak business model and started selling coffee to people. Um, and I would obsess on espresso, but my I bought a Chemex and I go, I should have an idea of what what the brewed coffee tastes like and 
And my lens still is espresso. That's what I dream about. Uh, even my colleagues, the people I work with, they love to cup, which I love to do. But, you know, they love the batch brew coffee and the Hario pour overs, which I do. But Man, I'm the one in the companies dreaming about the espresso. So, That's what I want do, first thing in the morning. Are, are we talking literal dreaming? Do you do you like wake up in the morning with with like oh I had a dream about pulling shots no, it's, or it's, making it's a weird. new blend? No, I, I I I dream about flavors, which is weird. Some people dream about colors. Occasionally, I do, but I'll dream about flavors and I'll go oh wow this, and I'll wake up and it's dreaming about espresso and it's not filtered coffee it's definitely espresso that i dream about um but uh and uh, i dream about other flavors too <laughs> but uh that's my own weird makeup and probably why i'm such a troubled individual but uh this is uh in terms of espresso culture and how this whole thing evolved i don't know i mean i just think starbucks is really good at what they do. I talked about them. I think about them all the time. I think they're a very successful coffee company, um, you know, and they're really good at selling milk and uh, espresso with it and frappuccinos and all this other stuff and, and really cold drinks. Someone was telling me that 80% of their beverages worldwide are ice drinks which I find mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, that's my advice to people if they have to go to Starbucks is stick to stick to the cold stuff. You can't uh, deny a Frappuccino is a pretty tasty thing. Um, what, what, what's not to like? Um, so, <laughs> I mean, they're union-busting. Uh, there's plenty of points to score with, with our audience of seven people that are probably... Uh, uh, with this podcast for episode one, um, to to basically like, I, I feel like as an industry we we all got to this like mature place where we acknowledge how important Starbucks is to creating the category that we're all pretending to thrive in. <laughs> you know, when I started in coffee, it was like just after WTO Seattle. Starbucks was a a um, you know, an avatar of, of globalization and um, working at, you know, a small mom and pop, you know, if you had a successful business, they were going to look for real estate on your block. Like they weren't seen as a, as a colleague or as a predecessor, but as a predator um, that wanted to put you out of business. And at some point, like, you know, everybody just got a little kind of Unitarian about it or something, and we decided that you know Starbucks is as a as an ally in the big picture. And I, I wonder if you have any feelings about that. I mean, I just saw them as they do what they do, and I do what I do. And when I was up in Santa Rosa, I had a little espresso card inside of a newsstand, and it was really not even a hundred yards away from a Barnes and Noble that had a Starbucks inside of it. And I happen to know the managers there and I knew our numbers and we were growing about 20% a year. They weren't, um, you know, we had our own style of making coffee. They probably, they have bigger numbers. They had longer hours and they had bigger staffs and, you know, we, we kept growing and I never saw them as a big threat because they're so different from what, I was doing and I felt like 
I wouldn't mind being across the street from a lot of the Starbucks because they're really good at picking locations. So, you know, some people saw them as the, you know, the big threat and they just have, they have a lot more money than other, most of the small mom and pops. But I think if you're good at what you do and you create something that's different, Starbucks isn't a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of the sort of differentiation in third wave specialty coffee, whatever was, was about sort of pushing against Starbucks. And I think that that created this thing where we, where we tried to be like fancier, where we tried to like sort of, you know, out serious, like Starbucks isn't serious. We're serious. Like, like is this elevation around, um, you know, all of the sort of, you know, smoke and mirrors and procedural elements about the coffee, the impact of that is that when somebody walks into like, you know, an intelligentsia or a blue bottle or something, they feel like it's this luxury, elevated, expensive, premium, bougier than, you know, Starbucks, which is like, you know, McDonald's Subway sandwiches, like it's it's a big chain. And, and we wanted to kind of differentiate that. And so you get, you know, all of these sort of signifiers of authenticity and, um, you know, when I first got into beer as a beer nerd in the late nineties, like if you cared about <laughs> beer more than what just came in a can, like if you got anything that was imported, you know, this was New York city in the nineties, there weren't, um, very many or hardly any like bars where you could get really a good selection of, of beer, certainly not what would become called craft beer. Um, and if you were into that, like you were a beer snob, then there was this explosion of, of, you know, a resurgence, I guess, of craft brewing in America. And I feel like it, you know, people were willing to pay a premium price for it. You know, they would go and, you know, throw down good money at, at their local brew pub. Um, and, you know, this is a much easier to manufacture product with higher margins. And, you know, people didn't think twice about throwing down really good money for, for a premium version of a product and that category, um, and still feel like it's a blue collar beverage. You know, they walk that line much better than us. Um, and, and I think that there is something that felt kind of unnecessarily, way unnecessarily exclusive or, you know, that you had to have an educated palate to like really understand why our coffee was so good. And it's just, this is, this all seems like a, a self-defeating, bullshit and then it became an arms race of all of these small roasters finding you know new ways to sort of split hairs the attack surface for us was that everybody thought you know we're printing money we're taking it like this is like this thing of you know you see a line out to the street of people waiting to pay you know three dollars for a cup of coffee and you know that that can't be right and you know meanwhile down the street you know that the bar is you know pouring you a half glass of Chimay for eight bucks and you're going to tip a dollar and not think twice about it. And I just feel like coffee didn't really, we, we, we missed the mark on, on messaging around the culinary story without dressing it up in all of this, uh, uh, culinary burlesque around gourmet pretenses and shit. And anyway, that's, you've heard me rant about that. 500 times and in my phone I, calls. And I've enjoyed that. Um, I think one of the things is just, 
coffee is expensive to make, to really, you know, it's, it's you know, and our listeners know that it takes us, if you're doing it at a coffee bar, it takes this level of involvement and care for it to taste good or to work. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And how do you have a success rate with that and then get it to the guest um, and make that all work? And it's expensive. And I'd say one, people have made the argument it's actually by the time you pay the farmers and all the other labor and it's much more expensive to produce that really high quality cup of coffee than the wine but there is pushback from the guest if you go over a certain price point. They go, well, $5 for a cup of coffee, that's insane. You are gouging us, you are ripping us off. And that's bougie, but maybe that same individual will spend, you know, 11, 12, 13, $14 for an average cup of wine, you know, and that's a different experience. But the beer, I don't know what a good tasty beer is these days. If it's five, six dollars, people spend that with much less labor involved than the coffee. And I had one of my colleagues years ago said, well, he said that that the alcohol may get you laid. Uh, the coffee won't. Uh, I, I can't speak to that. <laughs> yeah, but, I, don't, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's been my experience. <laughs> but, 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 but I'd say the coffee has been historically a cheaper beverage, at least in the U.S. It's something. There's still the tradition of free refills. Um, I won't speak to whether that's good or bad. I think colleagues ago, that's terrible. Maybe if you're the recipient and someone's giving you more coffee, but a lot of restaurants feel that that model should exist and maybe live into perpetuity. Um, and I, I always thought that, you know, for what I call high-end quality coffee, that was a horrible business model because no one's going to refill your glass of wine or another plate of food, or give you another beer on the house, but they will do that with coffee. And that, you know, I complained about that 22 years ago, and that's still a real thing. Um, but that would be, you know, I don't know whether that's old curmudgeon Barnett <laughs> complaining about just the way things are. People do, I think there's price sensitivity on that, but it's interesting, the people that might be upset at paying more than $4 for a 12 ounce cup of coffee, they may kick go down later in the afternoon or spend $6 or more for a Frappuccino uh, and, and be happy to spend that and feel, you know, entitled to that. So it's how do you set the table for folks and how do you communicate that stuff? And what is a fair price for a cup of coffee? We had someone complaining because we had someone at our shop, they gave us a three-star review on Yelp because one of our bags of beans was $30 and kind of go, that's valid for people that kind of not want to pay so much if they can get coffee somewhere else. I mean, there are places to get cheaper coffee. Go to Costco and you can get some great deals on Starbucks coffee that's going to be much less expensive or different places to get these beans. But I'd say you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm thinking, how do I pay the farmers the most money I can and not nickel and dime them? How do I pay my staff 
How do I pay my rent? How do I pay all these other things? Not to moan about that, but how do you survive in this market? There's been a lot of consolidation since you and I have entered into the, the coffee roasting, the mom and pop side of things. You know, we've been doing this for over 20 years. Some of our colleagues have received big investment from Wall Street firms and also from privately held larger uh, German um, families yeah. that are kind of behemoth what they owe, own and uh, their, their market share of what the coffee industry is. And, you know, the small mom and pops, it's really hard to compete with those companies. You know, that large German conglomerate and, you know, they do what they do, but they can get terms on their coffee where they don't have to pay the importers for 365 days. You and I have to pay our our bills within 30 days or we're, we're cut off. So it's just a different scale of operations. Yeah. Yep. You have any heroes in this? After all these years, like people go, I love working with this person. They're kind of, they're awesome. You know, they'll probably be some of your guests on the show. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you're my first guest because you're high on that list. Like we've, we've gotten to do some cool stuff together over the years. I mean, I think, you know, we could, we could bring up slow food nation and talk about that for, <laughs> for an hour really, because, uh, that event in 2008, um, that, uh, you, I, and Eileen Hasse from ritual curated that era in kind of both coffee and the food world and in the changing conversations around how people looked at, you know, the supply chain inside of food was, was, um, was really different. I mean, I feel like to my mind, that's like kind of the, the period around which, you know, what we might call the third wave of coffee was kind of hitting its, its zenith. I've been really lucky, um, to fall in with a crowd of people who were, you know, doing pioneering work in coffee. <laughs> um, I mean, I think you and I both had the experience of, of being in coffee around the time that the, the internet first became a, a, a piece of the, the conversation that, um, professionals and serious hobbyists were sharing notes for the first time and, um, and, and starting to like build a rough map of a landscape of, you know, who's who and who's doing what and what coffees do you need to try? And the sort of first producers to sort of come into the room on that, you know, people like Edwin Martinez, who, um, I'm, I will be asking to be a guest, uh, very soon. Um, he's awesome. And, you know, and, and kind of how that, you know, it was this fertile period of, um, you know, of people sharing ideas and a lot came out of, of that era, um, because it was still so many things about, coffee so many things about espresso so many things about the, the idea of what a, a coffee bar could be or should be what we should be educating people about or not um what was was it was it was all a jump ball and um and kind of everybody <laughs> could could participate and i think 
you know, for, for those of us that, um, got to be a part of that, it was, it was cool and exciting. And I think, um, you know, it's a very different landscape now and that, you know, you can go to a couple of trade shows and there's so many of them so often. And, you know, and there's going to be booths of people who, you know, if you're a noob to coffee, like there's, somebody's going to try to sell you a roasting machine. Somebody's going to try to sell you an espresso machine. Somebody's going to convince you to, to jump into the coffee business head first. And, but it just feels like it's, it's a much bigger industry. And, and I, I feel like there was a time not that long ago where, you know, you went into a new city and you found a place that had like a decent espresso machine. You were like, Oh, this is, you know, it was worth, if, if somebody was roasting coffee in Kansas city and, and they popped up on the internet, you were like, you were going to get on a plane and go to Kansas city and, you know, Broadway coffee, like you were going to taste what those guys were doing because sure. they were one of just a handful of people that were even playing around in this arena. And I feel like at that time it was very exciting. You experienced a lot of, you know, distinct stylistic choices that, people were doing with their roasting or the kind of coffees that they thought were of quality. It felt vibrant and, and different. And now there's, I think a set of like orthodoxies and best practices and assumptions and, um, and the way that people roast and the way that people brew and, you know, stuff like tools like Cropster that have created this kind of, you know, homogenous floor where like you can expect that you can go into almost any city and find a roaster who's reasonably, skilled at what they're doing and is following a good set of best practices. And you're going to reliably get, you know, a beverage that, you know, hits, hits par and is better than what you can get at Starbucks. And, um, and you can sort of take for granted that like, you know, that our movement one, that, that like a decent coffee bar, espresso bar culture is, is, uh, has, has taken root. Um, but on the sort of exciting end, it's just, it's, it's hard for me to sort of feel that same impulse of like, Oh man, I've got to like get on a plane to New York because the shop just opened and they're doing this. And it's, you know, and it's an experience that's going to be very different than no, it's, it's, it's not, you're, you're going to go and you're going to find an experience that's kind of somewhere on par or above par to what everybody else is doing, buying the same green coffees, everyone else is buying, roasting them to the same, you know, curves on a, uh, on a, on a software program as, you know, other roasters are doing using the same equipment tuned the same way. Um, baristas following roughly the same paradigm on the same equipment that, um, it's, it's not as much of a, um, an adventure to go to a new shop. And personally, when I go to a new shop, which I've just, you know, post pandemic, it's still a pandemic, um, but starting to like explore some of the many new shops that have strangely opened um, during the pandemic here in LA. Uh, and it's, you know, as someone who's been on both sides of the counter for many years, it's hard for me to go into a shop and not sort of be mentally armchair quarterbacking the decisions that were made about, you know, where they put the machine, how they greet people, how they merchandise the coffee, like what the menu looks like, uh, what the acoustics and the atmosphere and, you know, who is this for? Does it fit in the neighborhood? Like what statement are they trying to make? And, and, um, so it's, 
you know, I don't know if for, you know, newer people or younger people in the industry, it's, it's a very different perspective and how they approach that. But, um, but you've been in this longer than me. Do you, are you over coffee? <laughs> do you, do you walk into a shop and feel like, uh, you know, are, can you get excited about it? Does it often seem like I've seen this before? Or like where, where's the, where's the novelty for you in this? I would say there's some people doing exciting things right now. Um, and that those are, you know, there are people doing some exciting stuff. It's different that they're out there, that they're not doing cookie cutter, that they have their own unique takes on it. Sometimes they're presenting coffee from not just one roaster. They're doing the multi-roaster thing. They're trying to brew their coffees different ways. But I'd say people have fun with it. They're doing cool things. You know, in New York, you have coffee bars that are, you know, really literally farm to to cup or, you know, the importer has the coffee bar in New York. And that's a pretty cool concept. Um, is the coffee better? I don't know. You know, it's, uh, but I think these are, you know, it's interesting. Um, I would say that it's probably like everything else that 99% of it is just people copying what's already been done. Is that bad? Who's to say, you know, what does it need to be original? If it's a tasty beverage, great. Um, and I wish all entrepreneurs all the best. It's pretty rough out there to just pay the bills and pay yourself and make a go of it. Probably harder than ever. Um, and especially with COVID and everything else. So I'm rooting for those folks and I'm not trying to dismiss them. But do I get excited about it? I don't know. I haven't been a coffee bar I'm just a couple since the pandemic. I'm really more San Francisco bound, so I can't really say. And I kind of walk over to the cafes and, you know, between my house and tasting coffee and doing what I do. It's not as interesting a lens for, you know, go back 12, 13 years. I was going to coffee bars throughout Los Angeles, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, Copenhagen, um, Paris, London, etc. So I miss that world. So it's hard for me to really say. In terms of Cropster, which is a software device for cafes now and also for measuring uh, what's going on inside of a roaster and not just what's going on inside of the roaster, but in terms of how much coffee you're roasting per week which coffees you're roasting and keeping track of it. I think it's a very valuable tool, at least in keeping track of coffee inventories, um, roasts. But I think it's a tool. And I would say to a younger roaster, learn how to smell the coffee, learn how to cook it. And, you know, I was fortunate and unfortunate. I learned on a Diedrich IR-12 and I didn't even have... Um, a real gas pressure reading meter. So my whole world was based on looking at flame or actually at infrared burners and learning how to adjust my roast based on how things looked and flying by the seat of my pants. And, you know, my background was cooking. So that was kind of the world I worked in. And then tasting, tasting, tasting the results. And, 
You know, I'd have to write down everything at two minute intervals. Cropster makes that very immediate. Which is better? I think it, maybe it's a combination of both worlds, but I worry, I don't really worry about it, but I'd say I observe that there are individuals who say the coffee is good because of the numbers. It is good because they've hit these digital metrics or they can see the performance in Cropster or TDS and therefore the it is a good tasting coffee. But I think it's all about the palate. I think that the human tongue, our brain, our sense of smell is the best computer there is and that you learn to trust your ability to taste and, you know, use these other tools. Um, it's fine. You know, they're, they're augment those tools with your brain and, you know, then you've got something. Right. Yep. I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. I think that, uh, you know, as Terrence McKenna said, the, the felt presence of immediate experience that, um, you, you have to, you have to put that in the foreground, um, that, uh, you have to trust your own senses and the, another, another trope I bring up all the time is, you know, when I meet someone who's, who's new in coffee, a young barista and, you know, like I ask, like, what's, you know, you've got four coffees on the menu. What, what one do I want? Like, I expect that somebody who, who loves coffee enough to like take a low paying job working inside of it and treat it as like part of a career path, um, which is, which is a big deal, um, that, you know, that they should have feelings about coffee. And I, I think that there's like a, a thing that happens, especially at, you know, at shops that have a really good reputation where, um, a lot of people come into it new and they sort of embrace this, um, extreme humility that, you know, well, look, I'm just learning. I've only been a barista for six months. I don't, you know, even when they don't know that I'm a fellow coffee professional, even if I'm just a guy off the street where I'm going to get uh, a lecture about how, how, oh, I couldn't possibly tell you what's good. <laughs> I, I haven't been doing this long enough to tell you like what's good. Like I can tell you, you know, some chapter and verse about, you know, flavor notes that are on this bag that, that may or may not have any relevance to if the coffee's any good or not. Um, but, but so I, I think that there's like a, a, a thing that happens at a lot of these companies where, you know, there's a couple of people's opinion who matter, um, <laughs> who maybe get to make some decisions about what coffees get selected or how they're roasted or in what ways that they're prepared. And then, you know, a lot of people who, um, are kind of stuck, uh, just kind of serving that however it's been presented to them. And I think like, you know, barista competitions and things have kind of, you know, centered the barista in these conversations about the culinary aspects of coffee is sort of, they're the ones talking to the customer. They're the, you know, the vanguard and the educators. Um, but that, you know, in, in my mind, like if, you are the one getting your hands dirty with the coffee. Like you should, you should take the gloves off. You should, you should, maybe it doesn't make sense in your shop or in the environment that you're in or the company that you're in or while you're still learning, but, but you should have at least some moment, um, in your craft or on your career path where 
you can change the pressure pressure on the espresso machine. You can reblend the coffee in a way that that you think is going to make more sense. That this whole podcast thing is just going to be me like spitballing half baked pieces of unfinished essays towards a book that will probably never be written. That's great. I can't wait. Yeah. We'll, we'll prod you on to, uh, to write that book. Yeah. Well, Andrew, is there, is there anything else you want to share with, with the, the wide world of over coffee with tonks listeners, all 17 of them, maybe? No, (laughs) Tony's one of my heroes in coffee. What a pleasure it is to uh, hang out with Tony for a bit and, uh, be a guest on this podcast and, uh, Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thanks for being on, Andrew. And um, we'll undoubtedly talk soon. And I'll have you on as a guest again uh, when I hit some you know, anniversary number of episodes and, and actually get kind of good at this because, you know, got a ways to go. Um, awesome. <laughs> Can't wait. Thanks, Tony. I'd like to say thank you to everyone that made it to the end of this episode, um, who got through the whole thing. I really appreciate uh, you being a listener. Um, this is uh, just the beginning for me, and uh, and hopefully uh, I'm learning the ropes okay. Um, there's no advertiser for this, but if you want to feel like you're supporting uh, this podcast and uh, my ability to continue doing this podcast in the future, um, I happen to have a coffee roasting company and we're really good. Uh, you can find us at www.yesplease.coffee, Y-E-S-P-L-Z. And uh, we would love to send you some coffee. And uh, I should probably throw a promo code in here, but it's my first episode. So um, all of this is terribly, terribly new to me. Um, but, uh, but I thank you again for coming on this journey and uh, bonus points for all of you who made it this far. Thank you so much.